This is episode number 255, How Self-Talk Can Change Your Life with Ethan Cross. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spending the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. One thing you can do is something called distance self-talk. So try to coach yourself through a problem like you would give advice to a friend and actually use your own name and the second person pronoun you to do that. The idea here is that we know that it's much easier for us to give advice to other people than it is for us to take our own advice. It's always shocking to me when I hear about the kinds of things that people think to themselves in the first person. We would never say those things to our friends who come to us for advice. A lot of the people who I talk to about these issues, not only would they, do they tell me they would never say it to a friend, sometimes they don't even feel comfortable verbalizing what they say to themselves. They're embarrassed to reveal the dark things that they think. And so the idea here is that we can use language to help shift our perspective, to help us think about ourselves and advise ourselves like we were a coach to someone else. So stoked that we're hanging out together today, my friend, and I am so grateful for the reviews that you've been leaving and the messages you've been sending me. It's it's so cool to see how these guests and these stories and this information resonates with you, and I always benefit from it too. And today's guest and topic are no different. If you've listened to some of my podcasts or you are a reader of my newsletter, you know that I think self-talk is super important. The way that we describe things that are happening to us and for us shapes our lives. And it's something that you have to train. There are specific tools and there's a lot of research out there on how to optimize your self-talk. Things that we'll hear about in this podcast today, like distant self-talk. But first, let's get into our guest. His name is Dr. Ethan Cross, and he is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind, the best-selling author of the book Chatter, and a professor at the University of Michigan's psychology department and Ross School of Business. He is very passionate about self-talk, and he has a lab that's all about self-talk and emotional regulation. Cross studies how the conversations people have with themselves impact their health, performance, decisions, and relationships. In 2008, he founded his Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory at the University of Michigan. As a leading expert in this field, Cross has been published in many peer-reviewed journals and has been interviewed on several major news shows, including CBS Evening News, Good Morning America, Anderson Cooper Full Circle, and NPR's Morning Edition. His work has also been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, and more. In this episode, you'll hear more about his lab, more about emotions, mindfulness, and problem-solving. You'll also learn more about his book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, How to Harness It, and it interweaves with groundbreaking behavioral and brain research with real-world examples to explain how conversations we have with ourselves shape our lives and gives us the power to shape them. If you've heard of my e-course, the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy, self-talk is one of the modules, and I use some of Dr. Cross's research and a bunch of other research around self-talk. Things like How do you talk to yourself? Do you say you got this or I got this? And how do you distance yourself from things that are happening? So in this podcast, you're actually going to hear some of that research. And you're going to hear about problem solving versus overthinking, negative self-talk versus chatter. We're going to talk about sleep, 
There's just so many different things that you're going to learn. But if you want to take my Mindset Academy, you can find that at sanyaluni.com and find Mindset Academy in the main menu. Or you can go to moxieandgrit.com or you can just find it in the show notes. And the difference between good and great performers is that they train their mind. And especially when things get hard and we start telling ourselves, this is too hard or I can't do this or I don't want to be here. Those thoughts are voluntary in some ways. Like you might not be able to stop thinking them, but being able to change the narrative around the things that are happening to you is so powerful. And you can do that with self-talk. You can do that through this Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy, where not only do you learn about self-talk, but you learn about learned optimism. You learn about goal setting and intrinsic motivation and also race day confidence. So go to sonyalooney.com and find the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy. I wanted to create this course because there are so many different mental skills in my toolbox that have helped me become one of the world's greatest endurance racers. Feels weird to say that, (laughs) but it's true. And I wanted to have it all in one place. That way you could have those skills too. If you're subscribed to my newsletter at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter, you might have noticed that Chatter is a book that I was reading for a couple of weeks. In my newsletter, I actually include the current book that I'm reading. I include a research thought of the week that is usually about motivation and mindset. And I also let you know what this week's podcast is. So if you want to join others, go to sonyalooney.com slash newsletter to sign up for the newsletter. And if you haven't checked out Inside Tracker, if you've been listening to this podcast or any other podcast in a similar genre, Inside Tracker has been working hard to make sure that you know about them. And they are a company that looks at a ton of different biomarkers, over 30 different biomarkers in your blood to help you optimize your performance, to help you optimize sleep, and to help you feel at your best. And the thing is, is that we have a lot more power and autonomy over our lives, over our lifestyle, and the decisions that we make directly impact us. They directly impact us as a whole organism. Things like if you're taking vitamin D, things like are you optimizing for stress reduction and cortisol, which is something that is a marker of stress. And stress doesn't even have to be like you feel stressed, but just stress on the body from training, inflammation on the body. These are things that can be measured with Inside Tracker's blood work. So what happens is, well, in Canada, they can come to your house. Someone can come to your house and take your blood. But in the U.S., you can go into many, many different options for labs where they just take your blood and then you get a very comprehensive report of all of these biomarkers, where you're at, what your goals are, in a much tighter range than just if you're at the baseline of health, which is what you'd get if you're at a doctor's appointment or a doctor's office. And they make nutritional and lifestyle recommendations to improve these markers so that you can retest. And something that was actually interesting for me on my last test was as a plant-based person, someone who eats a plant-based diet, there are certain supplements that you're told to take and B12 is one of them. And it is very important to supplement with B12. But I found that my B12 was actually a little bit high because I was taking it very consistently. So I've backed off on my B12 supplementation a little bit because it's actually in fortified foods. So I'm looking forward to getting my results back to seeing if I am taking the right amount of B12. And also, most people need vitamin D. If you live north of Atlanta, you're probably not getting enough vitamin D naturally. So I like being able to keep tabs on that one as well. And also my cortisol. I traditionally have not had high cortisol in the past, but I have a lot of things going on. I have a toddler. I am an athlete. I have all these different parts of my business that I run. So I always like trying to keep tabs on things like C-reactive protein for inflammation and my stress. So you can get that at insidetracker.com slash Sonia to get 25% off. I highly recommend checking out the ultimate test and doing this at least once, if not twice, 
to take control of your health and performance. And that's insidetracker.com slash Sonia for 25% off. Okay, so let's get into today's very interesting episode with Ethan Cross so that you can learn all about self-talk. Dr. Cross, I'd love to hear about your lab. Well, I run a lab called the Emotion and Self-Control Lab at the University of Michigan. And, you know, fundamentally what we study is what we call the science of self-control. And the way I define self-control is our ability to align our thoughts, feelings, or behaviors with our goals. So it really is, you know, in a more simple sense, it's about look, there are things you want to do, things, ways you want to feel, you know, behaviors you want to engage in. How do we make those happen? Like, what's the science behind that? And um, we tackle those issues from lots of different perspectives. We study the brain, we study kids, we study adults, we look at people's behavior as they live their lives, you know, like doing studies using people's smartphones. And we also bring people into the lab and do experiments. So, so we had a lot of fun and, and we we learn stuff in the process. That sounds like the best job ever because yeah. you get to just get in people's inner worlds and learn so much. I'm so passionate about human behavior and helping people shift their behavior and just how much control we actually have over our experience. Well, it's a job that I certainly like. <laughs> uh, it's fun most of the time. They're definitely, you know, not always, but most of the time, you know, I think it, it for me, it, it doesn't feel like work. It's engaging and fun. And I think that's, um, you know, I've got two little kids and they're actively navigating the world and beginning to, I wonder what I'll do when I grow up. And the best advice I can give them is to find something that doesn't feel like work, something that's engaging where, you know, hopefully you can also help people with whatever you do. That's the message I convey. But back to this issue that you're really intrigued about, which I am too, about helping people figure out what they can control and giving them tools to do that. One, I think, really important distinction that I've benefited from, and I think people have too, is, is if we're thinking about like people's mental life, you know, the thoughts popping through their head, we often don't have control over the thoughts that pop up in our head at any given moment in time. So I know you're you're a cyclist and you're is that am I using the right professional term is there is there a distinction i should be using that i'm not aware of no Please no that, that, that's great <laughs> okay. okay you know and you're on the bike and i'm sure thoughts pop up in your head all the time sometimes there are things that you haven't thought about in a while we don't have control over the thoughts that pop into our head i've been studying the the mind for a really long time like i haven't come across any research that speaks to that issue what we do have control over is how we manage those thoughts once they pop up. And I think just knowing that can be really, really empowering for people. I remember one time I was teaching a class on the science of self-control to undergraduates here at Michigan. And you know we were talking about this issue, like when people are showing that they have self-control versus not. And we're talking about a case where you just, you have a temptation to like eat a cookie after 8 p.m., but you don't follow through with it. And some students thought, well, that, oh yeah, they exercise self-control. And other students like, no, they had the thought. And if you have the thought, that means you failed. And my response to those students was, you're setting a really high bar for being successful at managing yourself. If you're setting the bar at being able to control what pops into your head, because I don't think that is a controllable thing. 
Yeah, thanks for identifying that distinction. And another distinction I wanted to ask you about is the difference between self-control and willpower. Well, willpower is often used, well, it's defined in lots of different ways. The way I think about willpower is this idea that we can just muscle through a challenge that we're faced with, a self-control challenge. And and I use the term of self-control to refer to this broad idea of you've got some goals right? Things you want to get out of this experience in the world. How do you follow through with those goals with respect to your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviors? And the idea is willpower is that there's this, there's this resource somewhere in the mind that allows you to do that. And by and large, the research in this area hasn't shown that just telling a person to muscle through a challenge is is really that effective. Instead, there are specific ways of, of thinking about issues or specific behaviors you can engage in that are a lot more effective than just this kind of like brute force approach of pushing through. But some people, I should qualify that description. Some people use the term self-control willpower synonymously. Um, that's not how it tends to be used in the research landscape. And the next question I have for you is, how to define emotions, because I'm not even sure if you can actually control the emotion coming in, just like a thought coming in, but maybe you can control your response to that emotion. Well, an emotion is like a coordinated response to a particular circumstance that you're experiencing. And that circumstance could be an objective circumstance that you encounter in the world, like you're driving and someone flips you off. That may have happened to me earlier today. I promise I didn't do anything wrong. They were just in a bad mood. Or it could be a circumstance that you conjure up in your head, like when you imagine something that you're really afraid of. And it tends to have a, um, there's a, a profile, there's a physiological component to that emotional experience. There's a thinking or a cognitive component to it. And also this kind of experiential component, like how we feel. There are certain ways of thinking about the world, certain appraisals that can give rise to different kinds of emotions. And there's a lot of debate about, like there are different ideas about what the, you know, different appraisals are that give rise to different emotions. But, you know, take, take fear, you know, fear tends to happen when we're uncertain about something that, you know, may have implications for our, uh, for our welfare. So, you know, the way we think can certainly impact how we feel about things. Yeah, like an example that I have in mind that happened to me recently was something very stressful came up around, we just bought a new home and something came up and I immediately felt like the fear and the stress response, but mentally I was able to compartmentalize it to be like, it's going to be okay, or this, you know, the worst case isn't going to happen. And I was able to use my breath, but I could still feel a heaviness in my body. So it's, it felt like that there was some sort of like disconnect between what my mind was doing and what my body was doing. Well, you know, there can be those disconnects that occur. There's also a, the speed with which your body catches up with your mind. Like though they're not always in total sync in the sense that, you know, when we interpret a situation in a particular way, let's say as a threat, that activates this cascade of biochemical reactions that are designed to help you mobilize for that threat. And, you know, that's a really like, it's a sledgehammer approach to getting you ready. So you're flooded with these different 
neurochemicals that are then having implications for your for your body, cortisol goes up and so forth. And it can take a bit of time for that to wash out of your experience. I mean, I know there are times where I've been stressed and let's say I'm appraising something as a really stressful experience. Instantly, it's my stomach. That's my, you know, the physiological corollary for me. I'm like, I'm in the toilet, you know, <laughs> and my appetite goes down. And even if I can get a hold of that, if I can rein in that fear response relatively quickly at a cognitive level, it can take some time for my body to normalize because it's just been flooded by these different chemicals. So that makes sense. I love how we've started this because I think it's been pretty interesting so far to talk about self-control and emotion. But then now underlying it all is your inner narrative and the stories that you tell yourself. So you wrote this book, Chatter, which I think is a phenomenal book. And it has very real world and applicable examples of how to improve your self-talk from the things that you can do internally to the things you could do in your environment. So the first thing I really wanted to ask you about was creating physical distance from yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, when we get stuck in experiencing chatter, which I define as getting stuck in a negative thought loop. So you're ruminating about the past, you're worried about the future. The idea is you're experiencing some type of adversity and you focus your attention inward to try to make sense of it. And you use language to try to do that. Why am I feeling this way? What if this happens? But you don't come up with a solution and instead you just get stuck in ways that, to use the technical term, can make you miserable. And so <laughs> one antidote to that, one kind of tool that can be useful are distancing tools. When we get stuck experiencing that chatter, what we tend to do is we zoom in very narrowly on the problem at hand. We get tunnel vision like, oh my God, what if this happens or why did I say that? And when we zoom in in that way, we often lose sight of the bigger picture and alternative ways of making sense of the circumstances that might actually make us feel better. And so what we've learned over the years is that there are a lot of distancing tools, ways of, of quote unquote, taking a step back and thinking about our experience more objectively from a psychologically removed perspective that can be really helpful for helping us get unstuck, get out of chatter and, and helping us move on with our lives. And so uh, you know, a few common distancing tools that I talk about in the book. One thing you can do is something called distance self-talk. So try to coach yourself through a problem like you would give advice to a friend and actually use your own name and the second person pronoun you to do that. Though if you use this tool, my advice is to do it silently, not out loud. <laughs> um, that can elicit some eye rolls. But the idea here is that we know that it's much easier for us to give advice to other people than it is for us to take our own advice. It's always shocking to me when I hear about the kinds of things that people think to themselves in the first person. Oh my God, what if I, I screw up? I'm suck. Like we would never say those things to our friends who come to us for advice. A lot of the people who I talk to about these issues, not not only would they do they tell me they would never say it to a friend. Sometimes they don't even feel comfortable verbalizing what they say to themselves. They're embarrassed to reveal the dark things that they think. And so the idea here is that we can use language to help shift our perspective, to help us think about ourselves and advise ourselves like we were a coach to someone else. If you think about the situations in which we use names, we usually think about use names when we think about other people. So the idea is if you use your name to think about yourself, it's shifting you automatically into coach mode. 
all right, Ethan, here's how you're going to manage a situation. So that's one distancing tool you can use. Another tool that's useful for helping people deal with acute stressors is something called temporal distancing or mental time travel. And so what this involves is imagining how you're going to feel about something really stressful a day or a week or a year from now. When you're dealing with an acute stressor, something that will eventually end, what what doing this does is it makes it clear that as awful as what you're experiencing is, it will eventually pass. And, and that gives us hope. And that that can be a bomb for our voice. So you know, if I'm stressed out about a presentation I have to give, I'll often remind myself, well, how are you going to feel about this a week from now or two weeks from now? Lots of other things are going to happen in between and you always come back to normal. So it'll be fine. That takes the edge off in ways that can be useful. So, so those are two types of distancing tools are probably close to a dozen more uh, other ones that I talk about in the book. And they're little ways of shifting your perspective that can make a difference when you're mired in chatter. And why is it that using, I mean, you mentioned using you or using your name will help give you perspective because that's how you would talk to somebody else. But why specifically does that work in that way? Well, what it's doing is if you look at the brain and and we've done some research on this, it reduces activation in a group of brain regions that are involved in reflecting on the self that become increasingly activated when we are consumed or immersed in the situation. So it's, it's, you know, the thinking about the self neural hardware, if you will, is a little bit less activated. And we think that makes it much easier for people to reason. So let me just say one more thing about why this works. And so in a certain sense, what languages do this, the language we think is a really useful tool, because if you think about when you use names in the word you, most of the time that we use those parts of speech, it's when we think about and refer to other people. So there's a very tight association between names and others. So the idea here is that when you use your own name, that's activating the mindset of thinking about others. So it's language is automatically putting you into this thinking about others coach mode, which makes it much easier for you to follow through with that script. And in terms of the mental time travel piece where you are trying to ask yourself, you know, how am I going to feel about this tomorrow in a year? It requires an ability to be honest with yourself and an ability to pull yourself out of the emotion. Because if you're stuck in the emotion, it might be hard to say, yeah, like it's going to be, you know, better or different in a year. So how do you reconcile with the fact that some people can't be honest with themselves or get so stuck in the emotion part? I think there, I have two responses to that with, so this is specifically about the mental time travel yeah. strategy, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, the first thing to keep in mind is that a lot of the times when people engage in these strategies, they're doing it because they're motivated to feel better. And so they're looking for solutions to improve their mood. And so this is one way of opening up an alternative way of thinking about something that is plausible that might feel better. So for COVID, for example, this is a tool that I personally benefited from and a lot of the people I spoke with did as well. COVID was awful, still is, but by all accounts, there was a finish line in sight, right? And so that was something that people could anchor on like, yeah, as awful as it is, six months, a year from now, things will be better. There are some kinds of issues that are don't have a clear finish line. So you know, people dealing with like chronic poverty or homelessness, like it's not clear that things will get better. 
And that's an instance where I wouldn't use this tool. Uh, One theme of the book and also a theme of my research is that there are no single magic pills, no one-size-fits-all solutions. One tool works in all situations for all people. And so what we've learned is that we have this elaborate toolbox of tools that exist, right? I think that there are 26 or so I talk about in the book. And the idea is that what we need to do, both as a science, but also as people, is figure out what are the specific combinations of tools that work best for us, given the unique challenges that we face. And so, you know, if you're struggling with something and you try temporal distancing and it doesn't work, you want to pivot and shift to a different tool. I think there are different combinations of tools that work in different situations for different people. Yeah. And something that I've been asking a lot of people, because I've had some other psychologists on the show and also some very experienced meditation teachers, is that with like a meditation or mindfulness practice, it helps you become aware that you're thinking or what you're thinking about. But mindfulness practice is really about just like letting it go and living in the present moment and not about reframing. And there are certain studies out there like that use a mindfulness-based practice instead of a reframing cognitive behavioral therapy practice. Like I think in the UK to treat depression, they use like a mindfulness-based practice over cognitive behavioral therapy. So like in your research, where has this come up, if at all? Well, I think you're right about mindfulness practices being focused more on making people aware of how their mind works with respect to thoughts and allowing things to be let go. I think mindfulness is one tool that you want to have in your toolbox amidst many others. There are some circumstances under which simply becoming aware that you're experiencing chatter and then letting it go, you know, refocusing on the present, that might work really well. There are other circumstances under which reframing your experiences may be particularly useful. If it's a recurring event, one that you need to confront the issue again in the future. So I don't think of the distancing tool, for mindfulness involves distancing to a certain degree, but it's almost like you step back and then once you step back, you can choose what to do. You can choose to just accept and let go. You can choose to engage and reframe. You could choose to just avoid and not think about it. And there may be different times and places when you want to engage in those different practices. I think there is the one idea that I do react to is that you want to do only one of those things all the time. I don't think we have any evidence to support that idea that you should only use mindfulness. You should only use reframing tools. I think we're putting people in a much better position to achieve their goals and be happy by giving them access to the full suite of tools than just one or the other. The last thing I would say is that you know the book deals mostly with the ordinary problems of living that we all face, not not the kinds of clinical issues that put people in the terrain of mental illness. But if we do dip into that literature, what we do see is it's not just mindfulness and meditation that tends to be working. It's mindfulness-based CT, cognitive therapy. So there is an amalgamation of these approaches, even at that upper end of the spectrum as well. Yeah, thanks for pointing that part out. Something else that I wanted to ask you about was overthinking because Sometimes we think we're problem solving, but then we end up overthinking and ruminating even more about it. Where is the healthy line with thinking for problem solving? And when do you know when you're overthinking? Yeah. So I think of chatter as the overthinking. And, you know, I like to tell people 
there's nothing wrong with experiencing negative emotion or thinking negative thoughts. And I think part of this toxic positivity movement that has swept the nation and, and other, other nations over the past few years is that we should try to rid ourselves of any negative experiences. This would not be a good thing. We've evolved to experience negative emotions for really good reasons. They serve a function. They're useful because they are in pleasant states, right? So if I experience a little anxiety before a presentation, that's a good thing and motivates me to prepare. There are studies which show that anxiety before a performance like actually enhances performance as long as it's not overwhelming. And, and there are similarly, um, you can make similar cases for other negative emotions like sadness and anger too. They could be functional in, in small doses. When they become harmful is when we start experiencing chatter or overthinking. And, and really the subjective experience that accompanies those states are, is one of being stuck. You're focusing on a problem, but you're not making any progress. You're not solving it. And you can't stop thinking about it. So, you know, sometimes when I'm working on like a new paper or, you know, chapter in a book, I'll be working on it and trying to make connections and things, you know, it doesn't always flow smoothly. What I'll often do though, is I'll, I'll really try to work on it for a couple hours and then I'll put it aside and I'll come back to it the next day and I have a solution, right? So I'm making progress there. That's different from, oh my God, what am I going to do? I don't know. What should I do? What do I, and where you're just spinning over and over and not making any progress. And it feels like you can't stop thinking about it because you want to solve the problem. That's overthinking. That's what chatter is. And it's not a good thing. Yeah. So when you stop making progress, it's better to just put it aside if you can and trust that maybe the next day your brain will weave through and come out the other side with a solution. Yeah, well, that's certainly one approach. Another one would be to like avail yourself of some of the other ways of dealing with it. Like think about it from a different perspective, distance yourself, talk to someone else whose opinion you, you value and may be able to shed light on it in some way. So there are lots of things you could do to get unstuck once you're stuck. The first step though, is recognizing that you're stuck in the first place. I think, I think there's a lot of value in just understanding what chatter is, what overthinking is because a lot of people they only recognize that they're falling down the rabbit hole once they're really really in it and i think the the quicker we can realize that we're succumbing to chatter the sooner we can take action to prevent it from really spiraling and i'm gonna move along here a little bit you mentioned talking to others and there are some things in the book that i learned that i'd never heard before and one of them was about co-rumination can you talk about co-rumination and where it's appropriate to do that and where it's not going to be helpful? Sure. So a lot of us think that when we experience chatter, we should turn to others to vent our emotions and you know just express what we're feeling, let it all out. There's been a lot of research on this. And what we've learned is that venting our emotions to someone else, that can feel good in the moment and strengthen the, the friendship bonds that we share with other people. But it doesn't really help us manage our chatter. In fact, it can sometimes make it worse, right? So when you're when you're talking to someone else, you're just venting or in technical terms, experiencing co-rumination, you're ruminating together about something, right? It feels good because the person you're talking to, they're taking the time to listen. They really get you. They're empathizing. They're validating what you went through. Oh my God, you've, that sounds awful. Really? I can't believe they said that. What a jerk. You know, 
and back I can't and forth. believe someone flipped you off this morning. That's right. Can you believe it? The, the, you know, <laughs> and so what happens is you feel great about your relationship, super tight, but you leave that conversation just as angry or anxious or sad as you were when you started, if not more, because all you've done is reactivate the negative stuff in your head. So the best kinds of conversations when it comes to chatter actually do two things. First, you do give the other person an opportunity to express what they felt to a certain degree. It is important to connect emotionally with the other person and they need to learn what you went through. But at a certain point in the conversation, they ideally nudge you to think about the experience from a different perspective. In a certain sense, the other person you're talking to is in a perfect position to help broaden your perspective. So, you know, they they flipped you off, but you know what? It's more to life than getting flipped off, right? You got to hold the whole, all these things going on today. And I've gotten flipped off tons of times, big deal. You know, you don't want to engage with them, blah, blah, blah. So essentially the ideal is that the person you're going to for support, for advice, they listen, they hear, they validate, but at a certain point in the conversation, they help broaden your perspective. Now there is an art to doing this. And I say art because depending on the situation, the person some people may need to spend more time venting, you know, and before they're ready to shift into this kind of perspective broadening phase of a conversation. And so if you're the one in the position to give the support, you want to be sensitive to this and feel it out, right? And sometimes maybe even ask explicitly, hey, you know, I, I totally get it. it. Sounds awful. Can I tell you what I would do in this situation? Or have you thought about this other way of thinking about it? Are you ready to start talking about it? And so there's a little bit of finesse that I think is needed there. But I think knowing about these principles can be really useful for people because it can let people be a lot more deliberate, both with respect to who they go to, to obtain support when they're experiencing chatter. So there are some people in my life who I love a lot and they love me and I don't go to them to talk about my chatter because I know they're just going to get me to vent and it's going to get worse. Then there are other people out there who are really skilled and not just connecting with me, but helping me. And those are the people I consult. So I can be really careful about thinking about who I go to. I'm not doing it haphazardly. I'm being strategic. And on the flip side, when people come to me for support, I can be a lot more deliberate about how I try to help them. Yeah, I've been trying to work on how I offer support and how I help people because I tend to be a fixer. Like someone comes with, oh, this happened and I just want to fix it. But there also is that space that you said to let them like talk about how they felt. But then in your book, you also talked about a way to help others that doesn't undermine their self-efficacy. So how do you help somebody get through a problem or help somebody with a stressful situation without being too much of a fixer or without undermining their self-efficacy. I'm glad you brought this up because as you suggest, there is a danger in offering support, particularly when it's not asked for. So what I just described earlier about how to be a good like chatter advisor, so listen and then help broaden perspective, that pertains to situations where a person explicitly comes to you for help. There are going to be lots of instances in one's life where you see someone who's suffering, but they don't actually ask you for help, right? So I see this with my kids a lot, like they're struggling with something in school or something that's bothering them or their homework. And if I volunteer the support, like, you know, boy, oh boy, have I felt the wrath of, of that? Like, do you not think I know how to do this on my own? Did I ask you for help? You don't think I can help you? You know, blah, blah, blah. And then I get in trouble. And the reason that happens is 
when you offer advice without it being asked for, you threaten a person's sense of self-efficacy, their sense of self-worth. Now, you can still help people in those situations. And what it involves doing is helping them invisibly. This is called invisible support in, in the research literature. And it involves easing their burden or getting them information, but without them really being aware of it. And there are lots of forms that this can take. So if my wife is dealing with a lot of you know stress at work and stuff at home, I can make her life a little bit easier by taking care of dinner or picking up the dry cleaning, doing stuff around the house without being asked to do it, right? So she's not saying, hey, I can't do all these things. I need you to help. She does say that plenty, but <laughs> in this instance, you know, she wouldn't say that. I would just do it voluntarily. And in so doing, I would ease her burden, make, make her life a little bit easier. And that in ways that can really help small things make a difference. I'll give you another example. Let's say there's someone in my team who's really struggling with their presentation skills. You know, they're just not giving compelling presentations in my business. You need to be able to do that. There's a risk of me volunteering. Hey, you're not cutting it. Here's what you need to do better. So instead of having that kind of direct intervention as a first step, what I might do is send a few resources to the entire team and say, hey, I just came across these presentations on great public speaking. Check it out. Let's discuss this as a group. Or, hey, there's a talk on campus. Why don't we go attend and listen? It seems relevant to everything what we do. I'm getting the person the information, but I'm not shining a spotlight on their own inadequacies. So those are invisible ways of helping that can be quite useful. How do you help your kids with their homework invisibly? Well, with, with, <laughs> with great, great care. Uh, how do I help them invisibly? I wait for them to ask me for help. And the other thing that I do is I try to create a context at home where they feel comfortable asking me stuff. And so, you know, not shining a spotlight on a particular assignment and saying, you know, here's, hey, do it this way. But rather, you know, you can always ask me questions and I'm happy to answer them. I'm a teacher or I teach for a living. Never a problem asking questions. And I think those that kind of messaging has helped. And speaking of kids, like I've been thinking about this a lot because I just have a little guy. But when does he start self-referencing? You know, because toddlers talk about themselves in the third person. You're supposed to talk about yourself and them in the third person. But at a certain point, they start having their own inner narrative. So when does that start? It's a great question. Well, there's some evidence that this kind of self-talk begins to emerge at as early as 18 months. It could be earlier. That's when something called the verbal working memory system begins to come online. But it's typically older kids where we see them actually talking to themselves, usually, interestingly enough, with their own name. So before they have this like sense of self of I, me, my, it's not uncommon for kids to repeat to themselves the way that they hear their parents and caretakers talking to them. So, you know, if you're, to, what's your son's name? Uh, Bradley. Bradley. So, you know, you might hear, and how old is he? He yeah. is almost 15 months. 15 months. Okay. So, you know, give it a little bit of time, but imagine, you know, Bradley, you shouldn't eat with your feet. It's not good for you. You know, and then he goes off and then Bradley, you can't eat with your feet because then you can get sick and you need to eat with your hands and use a napkin. So you'll hear, if you spend time around kids, you'll often see them having conversations with themselves. And that's how many psychologists think self-control really begins, right? And it's how how socialization and the messages of our parents and cultures makes its way into our kids' minds. 
They're repeating what their parents have said to them. And eventually they start repeating those messages, not externally, but internally. But in a certain sense, it's how our parents' voices get into our own heads. Yeah, something my husband and I have thought about a lot is because our son already understands so, so much. And the things that you say out loud to your partner, maybe, or just that they hear you saying about yourself, I'm concerned that they would internalize that. So if they hear you saying like, no, I'm not good at this, or I can't do this, or, you know, something like that, then they might adopt that type of narrative. Well, you know, there's certainly links between parents' cognitive states and kids, but it's not what I would call deterministic in the sense that what they hear is, you know, they're destined to repeat the same narrative in their mind. Kids have agency in the same way that adults do and can be quite creative about how they think about the world. So there's not a, you know, one-to-one, if you say this, your parent, your, I mean, boy, oh boy, can you imagine how easy parenting might be if your kids just <laughs> yeah. repeated what you said to them? That would be great. The other thing to keep in mind with, with all of this is that, you know, for a while we used to think that the messages of parents seeped into our kids' heads and that's, it just went in one direction. But what we've known for a couple of decades now is that it actually goes in both directions. So our narrative can affect our children's narrative, but then our children's do things like think, behave, and they're the way they behave in the world impacts how we think about ourselves. So it's a dynamic mm-hmm. and it's changing and shifting. So it is a is a pretty complicated and evolving process. But there's no question that parents play an outsized role in shaping how children think about themselves. And so for that reason, I think it's it's important to be thinking about these issues. I can't remember if you said this in your book or in a podcast I heard you on, but you said you're creating a course for younger people to start using some of these tools. Is that something you're still working on or something that people can go find? Yeah. So we, for the past several years, we've been working with teachers to take what we know about the science of self-control and convert it into a middle school slash high school curriculum where we have these engaging lesson plans, about 14 of them that teach kids about how self-control works. And the idea is that learning this information should not only serve an academic function, but the idea is, hey, if you know how self-control works and you have reason to use some control in your life, you should be better off. So the curriculum's developed and we were supposed to run a, a, a large experiment, a large clinical trial evaluating it last fall, but um, COVID, COVID had other plans for us. So so the project's on hold, but the idea is that will the plan is to is to run the study next winter. So uh, coming soon, hopefully, to a journal near you. All right. And there's something interesting that I've heard people say. You know, when we're trying to talk about having more positive self-talk or you know motivational or instructional self-talk, but some people think that negative or harsh self-talk is something that they need in order to maintain their edge, like in business or in sports. What have you seen in that regard? Well, you know, I don't think the self, there's a difference between negative self-talk and chatter. So chatter is that negative thought loop that you can't get stopped thinking about where you're, you're feeling stagnated, like you're not solving a problem. Sometimes uh, we, we've done experiments where we look at how people, what they say to themselves before stressors, and sometimes, you know, people can be pretty stern, you know, like, 
muscle up. You can manage this, you know, don't be ridiculous. Like, you know, like saying stuff that's pretty stern and aggressive and it's motivating to them. So when we're helping people not experience chatter, it's not that we're changing the internal narrative to always be, you know, the verbal equivalent of hot cups of tea and warm cupcakes, right? Like people aren't always being super soothing with themselves. Sometimes they're being pretty stern. And I think that makes a great deal of sense because if we think about how we motivate other people in our lives, you know, sometimes like I have students where I've got to be stern with them to motivate them. And I think that's fine. You know, where we see problems arising is when people get stuck. And so again, negative emotions serve a function. A little bit of anxiety can be incredibly motivating. And and that's not something we want to shy away from. But I think there's a difference between stern and disparaging, like people that say like, you're an idiot or you suck or like, you're, you're not worth anything versus like, like you need to get this going and, you know. Yeah, well, I think there is, um, there's definitely a difference between the second example and the first in the sense that the first one is more motivating, I think, than just descriptive of how you feel. There are moments, oh man, I screwed up, you idiot. And then it like, let's say that's the narrative and then you move on and you don't get stuck there. Like drawing attention to the fact that you messed up for a few seconds, if you then don't wallow in that and move on, I don't know that there's something terribly wrong with it. I got, damn it, I I messed it up. Like that's, sometimes that's a reality. And as long as you're not getting stuck there, I think think it's probably okay. You know, I think that the key here is really are these thoughts serving you well? Do you feel like the internal narrative is standing in the way of allowing you to achieve your goals? If it is, that's when you've got to intervene. But if you've got an internal narrative that at times has a little bit of honest self-critique in there, and you're living a great flourishing life and you're happy, then I think that's totally fine and not something that we need to fix. I am a health coach and I do, I help people achieve their goals, like their health goals specifically. But a big part of our practice is helping people speak out loud so that they hear themselves say the things that they want and using reflections and powerful questions and motivational interviewing. So in your lab, like, have you come across, you know, the difference between writing something down or thinking it versus saying it out loud and the the impact that that has? There's a great study, there, there's research that bears on this. And basically when you write about your feelings and write about your deepest thoughts and feelings about something, that serves a distancing function, right? Because you're writing about yourself and you're becoming the target of your story. So in a certain sense, you're the character in the story and you're weaving the story about that character. So that serves a distancing function that can be useful. It can be harder to do that in our minds where we just pinball back and forth in our thinking in a more disorganized way. There are ways of helping us think more constructively in our heads, like we talked about earlier with distant self-talk, temporal distancing, and some other tools. But our default way of thinking about our problems often leads us into that disorganized pattern of thinking. There's less talk on talking out loud, interestingly enough. We, I reviewed this literature a few years ago. There wasn't a ton of work on it, but there is one great study which shows how it compares talking about your problems to writing about them to thinking about them. Both talking and writing were equivalently helpful. 
and better than just thinking on your own, which was which led to a more ruminative state. And in terms of creating this distance in sports and, and basically in anything, you can use visualization practices to think about what you want. And, you know, as a cyclist, you can envision yourself, you know, in a race or doing something technical on the mountain bike, you know, from your own vision or from a bird's eye view or like slowing it down or speeding it up. So does that work the same way? The visualization process works the same way as creating the, the distance in the self-talk and the chatter? It, it does. You know, what we know is that when you're in your first person point of view, that tends to heat things up and make them more emotional. And when you're in the bird's eye view, fly in the wall perspective, it tends to cool things down and make you more objective. Interestingly enough, there's also research that shows it goes in the opposite way. So if you ask people to, to recall really intense emotional experiences versus not intense ones, you're more likely to be in the immersed point of view through your own eyes when you're recalling something really intense. So that's another channel through which you can achieve distance through the visual element. Mm -hmm. And what about just like being in the zone or having that sense of flow versus, I think in mountain biking, a lot of times when people are struggling on technical terrain due to fatigue, it's a neurological fatigue. Like the brain just can't process any more decisions on technical terrain. So how does the being in the zone piece relate to your inner narrative? Is there like no narrative? Is it, you know, all positive? Yeah. I mean, it's no narrative. You want to shut that commentary off when you're in the zone and in flow mode. And in fact, in sports, a lot of the time, the way that the inner voice gets in the way is when you're trying to execute really complex behaviors that consist of multiple component parts, right? Like, you know, in the cycling world, I would imagine that has to do with like, you know, shifting gears and weight. I'm probably leaving out a gazillion other important Mm -hmm. things, looking ahead, you know, and taking into account the topography. Your ability to do that well is based on your experiences um, doing it thousands of times beforehand, right? Like, because you have practiced so much, you don't have to think about how all these individual behaviors come together. They're chunked together. They're grouped in a way that makes you a professional cyclist, like you optimized it. And so what you don't want to start doing when you're on the mountain is your mountain, mountain, right? You don't want to start individually scrutinizing each one of those behaviors. Once you do that, it all unravels. So instead you want to let that script just go on autopilot and you want to be totally in flow, not thinking about things. The place for your inner voice to intervene in a healthy way is when you're practicing, like if something's not working, then you want to carefully scrutinize the individual elements, but not during a competition. Mm-hmm. Another place I've used distancing in competition is like when th- something hurts really bad or like I do 100 mile mountain bike races. So it's like, oh, there's so much there's so much farther to go or maybe the race isn't going well. I'll actually imagine like zoom out. So it's like you, the earth is... Mm-hmm. You can see the earth. So like, okay, this this moment I'm having doesn't actually matter. Like nobody cares about this bike race. Nobody cares about, you know, this tiny little problem that I have. And that seems to make things better. Yeah. I mean, that's a distancing tool. And if you're doing it with the visual, I mean, like that's a visual version of this. It's It's a way of broadening your perspective to put things in perspective, right? I mean, like Sometimes, you know, I, I could be so upset. The guy, the guy gave me the bird today, you know, and, but 
you know, then if I zoom out and I think about the, the, the famished people on in other neighborhoods or continents, like, hey, like, let's get real here. This wasn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. It's a way of broadening our perspective by by zooming out. And, you know, when you think of yourself as a speck of a tiny speck, when you're looking at yourself from space, I think it's doing the same thing. And I also wanted to ask you about fatigue because all of us listening know, you know, when you're tired, you don't deal with emotions very well and it's easier to overthink or let your chatter get the best of you. What have you seen in your lab with fatigue and what, what's been the most, you know, interesting takeaway? Well, you know, I think fatigue certainly makes it more. So, well, let me back up. A lot of the tools that exist for managing chatter are effortful. They require they require your ability to muster your energy to implement those tools. And the more fatigued you are, the more challenging it might be to do that. There are also tools, though, that are less effortful. And one of the reasons we are really excited about those tools is because they should be easier to use in the heat of the moment when you may not have as much energy. And you know, distance self-talk being an example of one of those less effortful tools. Use your own name to coach yourself through a problem. It's not really hard to do that in the way that maybe like, you know, writing a journal entry for 15 minutes is or meditating Mm -hmm. for 20 minutes. But I think you do want to keep, you you want to be aware of the fact that when you're, you're more tired, you may be less motivated. When you're less motivated, that affects how you approach a problem. The question that often comes up in this space has to do with sleep because chatter often comes up in our sleep and can prevent us from getting more sleep. And so people often ask, what can you do about that situation? And and there, I think the thing to remember is, you know, the better you can manage your chatter when you have access to all of your tools during the day, the more likely you'll be effective in the evening. But if you're first trying to managing it, to manage it at three in the morning when it strikes, it's a lot harder to do. There's still things you can do when that happens. There are certain kinds of sleep hygiene practices you can engage in, but ideally you you try to manage it when you have all of your energy available to you. And we have a couple minutes left. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, speaking of energy, is how your physical environment affects your inner narrative. Well, it's really interesting. There are lots of ways you can interact with your physical space that help with chatter. One thing we know about chatter is people often feel like they don't have control of their thoughts when they're stuck in chatter, right? They want to stop thinking about it. They want to feel better, but they can't. And that's not a generally positive state because we know that people tend to like feeling like they're in control of things. What we've learned is you can compensate for that experience, that feeling of not having control by exerting control on your surroundings. So organizing a space and cleaning up, right? You're in control. You're putting things in order. That can have beneficial effects, giving people this sense of control and order that they lack when they're experiencing chatter. Performing a ritual, engaging in a complex sequence of behaviors. You do the exact same way every single time. You see athletes doing this a lot during high-stress moments. It's another way of enhancing feelings of control. So it's another way of doing something out in the world that helps with the dialogue happening between your head. The last thing is increasing your exposure to green spaces. We know that this can help people in a few different ways. One thing it can do is it restores our attention. So chatter, as we just talked about before, can really drain our attention. And you know, all we do is think about that. We can't think of anything else. What happens with green space exposure is 
Studies show that when you go for a walk in like a safe, natural space, your attention is, it gradually like drifts onto the interesting surroundings, the shrubs, the trees, the flowers. And so you're not like really carefully scrutinizing their structure and physical composition, but you're just kind of noticing them. What that does is it takes your attention off the chatter temporarily and, and allows your attention to restore. So when you're done with the walk, you've got more resources available to manage it. The other thing that green space exposure does is it puts us in a position to experience the emotion of awe, which is an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast that we have trouble explaining, like an amazing sunset or a mountain that's you know miles high or you know a tree that's been there for 200 years. When we experience awe, like how can this be? That's another way of broadening our perspective. It leads to something we call a shrinking of the self. We feel a whole lot smaller when, when we're contemplating something vast and indescribable. And when we feel smaller, so do our problems. And so, so you can get those feelings of awe, or a lot of people get it from green spaces, but you can get it elsewhere too. I feel awe when I, I'm in a city and I gaze up like a, a skyscraper. I feel awe. I feel awe every time I get on an airplane. I still don't quite understand how we figured out how to do that, fly. So those are, those are a variety of ways that you can manage what's happening in your head by interacting with your environment. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. There are so many tools and takeaways for people. And if, if they're not dying to go get your book now, then, then they need to work on their self-talk. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I appreciate I appreciate you having me and I appreciate the kind words about the book. Um, I'm glad it was helpful. And where can people find more information about you? They can go to my website. It's www.ethancross.com and that's cross with a, a K, K-R-O-S-S. And there's info about the book, about my lab, about me that they should be able to access there. All right. Well, thank you for all the work that you're doing. Thanks so much. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. This is one of my very favorite topics. It's near and dear to my heart. And getting to speak to an expert in this topic, self-talk and emotions was such a treat for me. So make sure you pick up the book Chatter. It has so much information in it that I think you'll find valuable, not only as an athlete, but in your life. And make sure to rate, review, and subscribe the podcast. I so appreciate it whenever I see those reviews coming in or even personal messages. But if you can leave those in the form of a review, I read every single one of them and it helps other people find the show too. And I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. 